Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We know now, uh, you know now, I know now, we've all heard by now that come October, cannabis is going to be legalized in Canada. This has been a big move. It was a campaign pledge from the federal liberals. They are coming through with it. They are going to do it. Come October, you will be able to legally buy recreational cannabis and there will be no criminal charges if you're found in possession of it, obviously. Now, you may agree with that decision. You may disagree with that decision. doesn't really matter. It's what's happening. However, we are now possibly looking at the next step because yesterday, Toronto's chief medical officer said Canada should go further than decriminalizing cannabis and marijuana. Canada should decriminalize all drugs. All drugs, cocaine, heroin, everything. Think of a drug, we should decriminalize that, maybe even, and she went a little further, maybe even legalize. Now, we'll get to what the difference is between those two, because there is a distinction. I'm not entirely sure I understand it, but we'll, I, I know my next guest will. Uh, this is what she said, uh, Eileen Davila, who is the medical officer of health in Toronto. Our belief, based on the evidence, is that the criminalization of people who take drugs actually is contributing to this opioid overdose emergency in our city because it forces people into unsafe drug practices and actually presents a barrier to those who might be interested in seeking help for addressing opioid use disorders. Scott Bernstein is a senior policy analyst with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. He's also a lawyer in Vancouver where he joins us from now. Scott, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, would I be right in saying that generally, maybe not word for word, but generally you would agree with Toronto's medical officer of health on this one? I, I think um, uh, looking over the um, the report that they put out uh, just recently, uh, I, I would say I would agree almost uh, 99% okay. with it. Take, um, take a minute or two and tell me why. What is it in there that you see that would be the advantage for Canada to unshackle all these drugs and say, you know what, it's now decriminalized? Yeah, so let me let me just give a little bit of context of why why um, the Toronto um, health, medical health officer is recommending this, and uh, this is actually a report that's going to be considered by the Toronto Board of Health uh, early next week uh, for approval. And so um, this was a result of a community dialogue process that started in the spring and involved um, hundreds of people. Um, in the Toronto area, um, almost a thousand people, I think, weighing in on um, their thoughts on drug policy and their and their um, views on it. And so, I think to get to your question, I think you know we we know now, and this was supported by a lot of surveying of people who participate in this dialogue. Uh, one thing we can say is that that Canadians are um, almost all in agreement that the current approach to drug policy isn't working, and the, and the current approach is that we've you know prohibited drugs uh we also have a system that allows legal access to many other drugs for example alcohol or caffeine but um or medical drugs but certain drugs we've uh, d- decided those are uh for whatever reason we're just going to absolutely prohibit them and we know that that hasn't stopped people from having access to drugs or taking them and what happened is what happens then is that um Organized crime is, for the most part, or at least unregulated, uncontrolled illegal actors are running the business, and so they're they're not paying any taxes. They're not um, engaging in any kind of quality control or concern for public health or safety. And so that that system, we know there's a lot of violence and problems from that system. 
and it's also experienced just by the individuals who are consuming drugs. We know that they're victims of the criminal law, and so they can and they can end up with criminal records or jail time, or um, they can be prohibited from getting certain kinds of jobs or traveling across international borders to the states, for example. And so there's a lot of negative impacts that come from having an approach that relies uh, almost exclusively on law enforcement instead of uh, other means. And one of the big ones that, that you mentioned was sort of this barrier to you know people who are using drugs. And, and let me just say that um, overwhelmingly, the vast majority, about 90% of people who use drugs um, across the board in all social, economic classes, uh, whatever, uh, 90% of people don't don't have a problematic relationship with the drugs. And so we could look, you know, again, we can look for the example of alcohol, and the majority of people consume alcohol, they enjoy it, they do it responsibly, um, and they don't have a dependence on alcohol or a problematic relationship with it. Of course, some people do, and so for those people who do have problems, it's important to have uh, health resources that they can access. And, and, so that's, that might be, and that's, Scott, of course, the other part of this is that yeah. she's making the case that if someone is going to be using this, we want to be able to have them go to a safe injection clinic or somewhere else where they can do this without dying. Yeah, so she, you know, so the, the first recommendation that she made was, um, you know, and, and again, this is uh, drugs are controlled federally, so, you know, it's great. It's, it's wonderful that um, the, the largest city in Canada is now joining also with Vancouver and calling for policy changes, but these changes are really going to happen um, at the federal government. And so they're calling on the federal government to decriminalize. And so uh, in, in tandem with decriminalizing the possession of drugs for personal use, they, they're asking for scaling up of prevention, so that's education, um, harm reduction, which, like you mentioned, that's things like supervised consumption sites or clean needles or um, other things that people can do to, to help make it safer, and then uh, treatment services for people who need it. And so those those are um, those are important things to include. We can't. Uh, I, I think very few people would say we should just decriminalize drugs and stop there. Um, in the in the you're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are chatting with Scott Bernstein, who is a senior policy analyst with the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition. He's also a lawyer in Vancouver. We're talking about Toronto's medical officer of health making the recommendation yesterday that all drugs in Canada be decriminalized, maybe even legalized. Uh, Scott, let me start there before we get to some of these problems. What is the difference between decriminalizing and legalizing? Right. So... So um, with, with any kind of market, you have um, consumers and suppliers. And so decriminalization deals with the former. And so it says people who are consumers of drugs and hold, usually they're set up with a threshold. So you, you have a certain amount under a limit. It's considered for your own personal use. Um, and so there's no criminal penalty. Some, some places might put in other kinds of penalties, like um, administrative penalties, like an equivalent of a parking ticket or something. So uh, what decriminalization does does is it you know, removes the stigma of uh, being a criminal. It allows people to access services, and it you know, saves, pe- saves the government a lot of money in enforcing the law on, on people who are using drugs. What it doesn't do, though, is address the supply side. And so you still have, um, you still have un- 
uh, tested and unvetted sources for these drugs, often run by organized uh, criminal actors. And so uh, legalization goes one step further, and it says, okay, we're not only going to take care of the consumer end of this uh, by not charging people for for using, we're also going to have a legal regulated system that's going to control who supplies it. And so we okay. can see that now. We can see that now with cannabis. That's yes. Well, we just in our news break just before we came on here for the show tonight, it was talking about Hamilton is expanding the growth areas, the, the amounts of warehouse space that can be used for growing it. So, okay, I get, now I thank you. I get that. All right. Here, there's, a, there's two areas that I think a lot of people, and I, this is where I have some concerns on this one. And let me throw these out to you and see your response to these. The first one is, a lot of this discussion, a lot of the issue about legalizing or decriminalizing right now is based on the opioid catastrophe that we have right now with a lot of people dying of opioid overdoses. And we all, it's certainly a tragedy and nobody wants to see this. Yet by and large, opioids in this country have been regulated by the government. They have been a controlled drug by the government and yet they have still gotten into the hands of people who can overdose on this. They, because I get a prescription doesn't mean my kid can't take pills from that prescription or I can't sell them or whatever else. So I have a hard time believing that even if the government says we will decriminalize but regulate now, that somehow this is going to make things better, that we're going to somehow prevent people who we don't want to have these drugs from still getting them. It seems like we're, we're trying to solve a problem without really solving the problem. Yeah, no, and, and I understand that, and I think people people shouldn't think of legalization as a as a panacea that's going to cure all these problems. And so the fact of the matter is, we've been living in a, a system of drug prohibition for nearly a hundred years, and so it's going to take some time for that to transition away into a system. But I think you know, once we once we switch and we start measuring and making objectives based on public health, we'll will you know will be able to work within the system and the tools we have and so i think you know your your example i think yeah so, some people are overdosing on prescription drugs that end up being diverted away from the person who has the prescription but the vast majority of people in canada who are dying of overdose now are not uh dying of that they're dying of uh, poisoning and so they buy they buy drug what they think is drug x on the street and this drug has been tainted with a much stronger opioid fentanyl, and it's not—it's not done in a legal way. It's—it's it's done in a, a very illegal way, uh, where the drugs are smuggled in to Canada, and um, there, there are reasons why the concentrated and stronger fentanyl is preferred because it's easier to uh, to uh, import and get in without being detected, and so that's being cut into a lot of drugs. And so what's what's happening is. Um, we really should think about this as a poisoning crisis. Okay, and so and so, let me jump yeah. from there because they, it leads to the second part, and that is okay. So your sure. point is well made. We want to make sure that people are getting clean drugs. Let's call them that. Just they don't have fentanyl. They, these are drugs that we know what is going to be in them. And so to get that, you're going to want to direct people towards a government or some sort of sanctioned agency. The problem is then, we've seen already with cannabis, we've seen that the price of cannabis is going to be considerably higher when you go through a government place that is coming, especially here in Ontario, the price of a, a gram or whatever of cannabis is going to be higher when you buy it from the official store than it would be from your corner dealer. And so I think if we do that, we're still going to have the people going back to their dealer because it's going to be a whole lot cheaper and you still are going to have that fentanyl possibly in there. Well, I think, you know, I think, I think a consumer sales model, which may be appropriate for cannabis, is not necessarily 
how we how we want to approach opioids. And so I think people need to think about um, regulation in, in a bit broader term. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, there's going to be shops selling heroin on the street. It it could be a model that's um, a somewhat, you know, healthcare model done through doctors or through pharmacies or through other uh, mechanisms that we control other drugs. But uh, I'll, I'll point you to one example that's rolling out in Vancouver as a pilot project. Um, they're they're giving hydromorphone, which is a uh, prescription drug, and it's going to be available to people who have substance use disorder and register for this program. They're going to be able to just get it for free, and so they're going to they're going to go to a vending machine and use a biometric um, ID or, to access it. And this is going to replace their need or desire to go and purchase drugs on the street of unknown potency and quality. And so this, the idea is that if we give them an access to, a, and, and hydromorphone is very cheap to produce, like just pennies, pennies per pill. And so I think, you know, if the idea is that if we give them a source of uh, drugs that are safer, we will, save, we will be saving lives. And so the first goal is not necessarily, you know, to get people to stop taking drugs or change their behavior other than to say purchase or get access to these other drugs that are safer. Scott Bernstein, really, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for it. Sorry we didn't have more, but uh, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Anytime. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I have two kids in university right now, and in the last week, they have both had to get up on one particular day before the crack of dawn to register for their university courses that are coming up in the fall. It's very competitive. There's only so, so many spots in each class, and you have to get up, and you have to be there right when it opens and get into that particular class, all the electives and stuff, uh, because you want to get the class you want. Well, neither of them, best I can tell, have signed up for this class. I would have, however. I would have definitely put this on the list of classes, courses, that I would have taken were I still in university Uh, Most universities, by the way, as an aside, very glad I'm not in their university anymore. But if I were there, I would have taken this course. Michelle Dion is an associate professor of political science at McMaster. She is teaching a course called The Politics of Funny. She joins us now. Michelle, thanks for doing this today. Oh, well, thanks for your interest. Uh, Where did this, uh, we're going to get to what it is, because it's not just about being funny. There's a specific thing here. But where did the idea come from for this? When, When did it hit you that, you know, I should do a course on this? Um, well, there's been a lot of talk in the media lately about um, whether or not, for instance, late night uh, talk show hosts should be wading into public policy debates. Um, and so that brought it to the fore. Um, I know that a lot of our young students are interested in both politics and political comedy, political satire. And so um, when our department was thinking about new courses that we might offer that would be interesting. Um, not only to political science students, but to students perhaps from other disciplines. This seemed like something that would um, attract, in particular, students that maybe are interested in politics, but not yet familiar with political science. Because when I first saw it, and I I don't know how I came across this, I think someone had tweeted out a photo of a a banner or like a, a sign on the wall or something for this. And I went, wow, that's kind of interesting. And my first thought was, hey, this is modern day basket weaving. And then I thought about it a little more and I went, wait a second. No, no, this is actually a fascinating idea for a course because not only, as you say, do we have all this stuff on late night and all this stuff on TV and whether or not people who are in politics should be giving political lessons. 
Uh, but politics and comedy have both become one of the more complicated areas that is fraught with all kinds of anger, ironically, since it's comedy, and difficulties in expressing whether, whether we should go here. Yeah, I think that's true. And surprisingly, there are a number of political scientists who have been looking at whether or not political comedy and particularly political satire shows like The Daily Show and uh, Colbert Report, 22 Minutes, those types of shows actually have appreciable impacts on whether or not people are more informed about politics or whether or not they're more interested, whether or not they turn out to vote. And so it's... um, probably a bit surprising to uh, kind of most listeners, I would guess, that there's actually kind of a scientific study of whether or not these types of um, political comedy have an impact in real-life politics and how people experience and participate in politics. What do you think? Uh, Well, I would say that the literature definitely shows that um, political satire in particular and political news shows definitely help inform younger viewers and get them more interested in politics, make them feel like they are better able to understand political debates. And even when they read and um, view regular news programming, um, people that also watch political satire feel more um, effective at kind of digesting the news and understanding um, the news that they're watching or, or reading, whatever it is. And so Um, The literature pretty much has um, shown through various types of surveys and experiments done on college campuses and kind of nationally representative surveys, at least in the United States, that this type of comedy has a real role in kind of um, contributing to public discourse. Unfortunately, I haven't yet found a lot of similar studies um, looking at similar types of programs in Canada, but I have no reason to think that it would be any different here. Well, you know, I, I, as you were talking there, I was starting to think about whether or not, you know, where the discourse or where the impact has been. And I can immediately, like two or three immediately came to mind. I was thinking, you know, Will Farrell's version of George W. Bush kind of became what a lot of people picture as George W. Bush. And, <laughs> yeah. and the idea, and, and, uh, um, the one of, uh, Sarah Palin from, uh, what's, uh, I can't think of her name. Um, Tina Fey's version, yes. where she says, I can see Russia from my porch, which she never actually said, but people actually believe that she said that. Like, there are, most people believe that that is now what she said, and that, to me, using that example specifically, goes, to me, a long way to saying these things have huge impact on what people believe or think about politics. I think that that's possible, that, in fact, it could lead to misinformation if that's the only source of where people are getting political information is from Um, comedy shows. But I think, in fact, the research would suggest that most people that watch comedy um, and political comedy shows are also kind of watching or reading national news um, as well. And so they tend to be more informed overall. So it's a a bit of a chicken and egg. um, But in general, the studies that I've seen suggest that the only people that really enjoy political comedy are the people that know enough about politics to begin with to kind of get it. Yeah, you have to know what the base of the joke is to get the joke. Exactly, exactly. And so it's really just a way to reinforce um, some of the political knowledge that you get from what you're reading in the news to kind of um, allow the those of us that really enjoy following politics to have a bit of a laugh um, sometimes when the news maybe gets a little bit heavy. One of the tricky parts about this, though, I think, and I want to get into this more, we've got to take a break in a moment, but I want to get into this more after, is that 
we now have such a divided society, whether it's the States or Canada or both or all over the world, that essentially half of your audience is never going to find whatever joke it is funny, depending on who you're making fun of. You basically, it's almost impossible now to make everybody laugh because half the people are upset or offended by who you're poking fun at. Yeah, I think that's a danger. I think there's definitely certain um, demographic characteristics of the people that enjoy certain types of political comedy. They tend to be more educated, male, and also more liberal. So that's also surprising. I'm not sure we've seen real strong um, comedy on entries on the right, uh, for instance. Uh, although, you know, some of the comedy shows do make fun of the left as well, at least the more extreme edges. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Chatting with Michelle Dion, associate professor of political science at McMaster, who's teaching a course called The Politics of Funny just during our commercial break. Lisa, who's on the other side of the glass doing the show today, pressing all the buttons to making us go, said how much she would have liked to have taken this course in university. I'm, you know, as we're chatting, I'm thinking the same thing. I would have loved to have taken this course. It sounds great. Michelle, here's one of the one of the things. Just before the break, you were saying the audience that we're finding for a lot of these political satire shows, male, educated, a little more left-wing. It's interesting because a couple of months ago, Rob Schneider, who used to be on Saturday Night Live, people may remember him. I'm trying to remember what characters he played, but um, anyway, people know who he is. Um, he told the New York Daily News that he didn't think that the show, and Saturday Night Live is sort of the, the standard bearer for political satire, he didn't think it's as funny because he says it's become too overtly political and too obviously anti-Trump. He says there's no surprise anymore about which way the joke is going to go, and that takes all the element of hilarity out of it. Do you agree with that? I'm not sure. I actually haven't watched Saturday Night Live in a, in a while um, since the election, but I do think that that is one of the key features of what makes something funny, which is that it's not obvious that comedians that um, we laugh the hardest at are the ones that walk us down one path and then immediately do a U-turn or a sideways turn or a left turn into other territory. And so I think the general sentiment that if it becomes too predictable that you're going to see Alec Baldwin making the same types of jokes um, every week, then it's going to cause people to be turned off and it's going to become stale. So I think in general, most comedians um, emphasize that, you know, the importance is the element of surprise, right? Mm-hmm. Having a, an, an insight that um, you and I might not have had on our own, but that um, they can lead us to in a surprising or, uh, perhaps even shocking way and, um, you know, cause us to, to chuckle about that. So, well, and one other, yeah, one other follow-up yeah. to that that I found really interesting, and he said, you know, when Dana Carvey was playing George Bush Sr. once upon a time, he says he may not have been a huge fan of George, George Bush, not George W. Bush, George Bush the father, mm-hmm. but he said he played him with some empathy and he played him almost lovingly of the character. He goes, where Alec Baldwin, who you just mentioned, this is, uh, again, Rob Schneider talking, says he plays Donald Trump with seething anger towards the man he's portraying. And he says there's a big difference that we've seen in the last 25 or 30 years, even in these shows, how they portray the characters that they like or don't like. I think that probably is a reflection of both the polarization in society and in politics overall, and also some people might even say that that is just reflects the decline of civility that we have in our political discourse. I mean, I think the same thing could be said for a lot of politicians that there used to be, um, you know, maybe it was grudging respect, but there was respect for each other um, 
and uh, political differences. And I think, you know, with social media and the increased polarization, it's not surprising that comedy reflects kind of the lack of civility and that type of mutual respect that uh, used to be more, I think, common in politics. Your course, and I was looking online today, your course is described, this is a quote, an examination of politics through the lens of comedy, from stand-up to satirical news, and including perspectives on race, class, gender, and free speech. I got to say, you've done an exceptional job making sure you cover all the hot bases. <laughs> there, there is nothing here that's not going to get you in trouble. Um, is Let's go through a couple of these, because, and again, it ties yeah. into politics, but can there be anything funny about race today? Is there any way to tell a joke about race and not just find yourself buried in a vat of hot water? Well, I would say two things about that. One is that among comedians, there's a strong norm that you can only kick up, which means that you can only joke about people who are more privileged privileged than you or who, you know, occupy a space of more privilege. So in that sense, you know, as long as you're, um, you're kicking up, jokes about race potentially are uh, less problematic for some people. I would say the other part of that is that what I hope to do with the class is look at some situation comedies on television and how those um, many of our favorite television shows over the years uh, help us understand differences across races or classes, help us understand um, sexual minorities perhaps, and that those actually are um, examples of using comedy, not only to laugh with and at um, the situations that people find themselves in, but also to kind of illustrate or show us kind of that we have similarities in the human experience. And so, you know, racial sitcoms or sitcoms that focus on gender or sexual orientation, those often actually have a normalizing effect and um, help us remember that, you know, even people that are different than us are in a lot of ways similar. And there's been research over the years that's shown that, for instance, people who watched Ellen or Will and Grace were more likely to support um, rights for lesbian and gay individuals. And so there is a, an element of how our comedy um, also helps us understand difference and um, shape some of our political values, even in ways that we might not uh, consciously understand. We have really changed, though. I think we would probably both agree on this. And I'm thinking back to when the Monica Lewinsky thing was happening. And Saturday Night Live had John Goodman, who was on Roseanne, uh-huh. playing Linda Tripp. And it was not a complimentary look of a uh-huh. woman. And I'm thinking that was it seemed hilarious back then. I don't know how that would play if you had a man looking like him intentionally trying to make a woman look obese and horrible looking today. I don't think it would play the same. No, I think you're right. And I do think that there are different sensibilities now around comedy and political correctness. And in fact, comedians themselves, like Jerry Seinfeld has mentioned this, and other comedians have written articles um, about how they used to be able to go onto university campuses. That's where they made most of their salary was by touring university campuses. And now younger um, audiences have new sensibilities around race and gender and sexuality and are um, often put off by certain types of comedy. So there is an element I hope to engage the students in a discussion about kind of free speech versus offensive speech and how do we um, make those distinctions doesn't matter who's making the speech or who's who's expressing the speech and how do we navigate that in a way that is um, 
is, you know, kind of reflects common values, but then also still allows us to laugh at ourselves um, and not take everything quite so seriously. Michelle Dion, the Associate Professor of Political Science at McMaster, who is teaching a course called The Politics of Funny, who I hope is still teaching this course when I retire and finally have time to take your course, because it, uh, <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun. Thanks for doing this today. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you for your interest. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a, uh, I want to bring in a good friend of ours. We haven't had him on in a long time because he's kind of, you know, well, I don't want to say he's disappeared, but we don't see him as much anymore. His name is Mark Hebsher. He joins us now. Mark, how are you? I'm great, Scott. I'm here to actually answer the trivia question. Well, don't do it yet. Don't do it yet because I know you will know it and then you'll blow it for everybody because I know you know this. I wouldn't do that to you. <laughs> I know you know it. You're a smart guy, and you're probably a big fan of Baba Ganoush as well. Well, I make well, I make it. I make it from scratch, so I know, I know the answer. How are you these days? We haven't seen you in a while. I'm great. Well, no, that's because I'm not on uh, the television station. Well, I know that. But you, uh, before we get into the stuff I want to talk about, I do want to mention, and I'll get back to it at the end, you are, though, not invisible. You're doing a podcast, which is great. It's a really fun podcast that you're doing. Tell people about it. Yeah, I'm doing a podcast called Hebsey on Sports. Uh, the name just came to me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but before that, uh, you know, our good friend Liz West, who uh, was my co-host on, on Square Off for uh, a number of years, and of course prior to that was the uh, MTP Donna Skelly. <clears throat> um, once, uh, you know, the station had its problems and such and we got to let go, Liz and I did a podcast called um, No Fun Intended. And it was, I guess, loosely based on the TV show in that she and I had a pretty good rapport and we had some pretty good guests and <clears throat> talked about a lot of issues. But um, you know, we, we kind of, I think after 257 podcast episodes, we kind of wanted to branch out into what we really liked to do. Liz, uh, you know, Liz is doing her thing and, I'm, and I, I love to do sports. So the suggestion was, uh, hey, why don't you do sports? Because when people run into me, inevitably the conversation turns to sports. So, you know, Scott, it's... Um, I mean, if that's your calling and that's what you're known for and that's what you're good at and you're most comfortable in, why not? So, Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So people should go not. check it out. Where can they find it? Well, see, um, you know, if you're, if you're part of the podcasting world, it's easy because on your phone there should be an icon that says podcast. And then under search, you just put my name in or put Hebsy in, H-E-B-S-Y, <clears throat> and then you uh, subscribe for free. So what happens is as soon as a new episode comes, your phone will tell you, your device will say, hey, new episode of Hebsey on Sports, and you would listen to it the way you would watch Netflix. You, anytime you want, you watch, you listen to it, you want to listen to 20 minutes of it, and then you've got to go do something else, you, you know, it stops, and then and you start it again when you want to. So Perfect. I guess it's like, you know, a podcast is like Netflix for, for radio, but you don't, there's no specific time. It's, you've got it downloaded, so it's in your device. You can listen whenever you want via iTunes or Stitcher or whatever you're podcast network. Believe me, Scott, it took me two years to fully understand <laughs> what podcasting is when you come from broadcast. Yes. And and unlike Netflix though, we should clarify there will be no nudity in your podcast, I'm guessing. Well there you know no there won't be, but there you see that the other thing is that <laughs> we're net um, podcasts are not under the same jurisdiction as terrestrial radio. For example, your station has to comply with the standards of the Canadian Broadcast Standards Association and of course the Canadian Radio Television Communications Commission's the CRTC. We don't have that in podcasting. There's no regulatory body. So we can say whatever we want. And um, you do. Uh, and well, you know, sometimes to some <laughs> certain extent, of course. You take some liberties, you can say the F word. 
not that I, you know, consciously use it, but sometimes, you know, in conversation, you'll say, ah, F. Yep. Well, if you say it on, on a podcast, you don't have to go, oh, my God, you know, we've got to edit that out or I'm going to get fired. So it gives you some liberty. Um, but generally speaking, it's, it's information that you would want that you don't have to um, watch or listen to live. You don't have to go, oh, darn it, I missed the podcast. Get it whenever. No one will ever say, I missed the podcast because. Well, if they I do, it's just it. an excuse. If well, they do, yeah. it's just an excuse. Let me ask you, though, because I wanted to have you on because uh, there are a few things I wanted to uh, touch base with you and, and get your thoughts on these things because they are uh, they were top of mind. I thought, you know, Mark would be interesting to hear for, about this. Uh, starting with this one, the World Cup, we got the first finalist in the World Cup. France beat Belgium today. Huh. And I'm thinking we have eight years until the World Cup is going to be shared. It's going to be partly in Canada. And presumably Canada is going to get a free pass in. We're going to be able to p- participate and be there. Is there any chance that eight years from now, Canada is going to be even remotely halfway decent slash competitive slash not embarrassing? Uh, yes, 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 and yes. I think you'll find in the past that nations that held the World Cup, <clears throat> their, um, their, the national team of that nation had to improve. There is no other way. South Africa, well, Brazil in 2016, I mean, Brazilians are soccer mad anyway, but a lot of nations that held it, uh, it benefited that nation. So now that Canada knows it's going to be one of the host nations and has eight years and now has John Herdman at the helm, who's a proven successful coach, uh, I think you're going to find a lot of um, terrific young players and a system that's going to be a great feeder system so that we won't, not only will we not embarrass ourselves, but depending on the type of draw you get and what group you're in, because remember, you're going to now have Eighteen groups of, of three. three I yep. Eighteen right? of three. Yep. Yeah. Eighteen of three. Is that right? Four, yep. No, it's forty-eight or it's fifty. Forty. Forty-eight. Forty-eight. So it'll 16, be. So sixteen of three. So you've got sixteen groups. Each group has three. Two of those three will get through to the next. So there's only going to be one nation that's going to be knocked out of every group in the group stage. Only one. And the chances might be that Canada isn't the worst team in their group, and with home field advantage and you know, in some of the matches anyway, might just find a way to get through to the what they call the knockout stage. But don't we need some sort of male version of Christine Sinclair or Melissa Tancredi or somebody to step forward so we can don't build we, a franchise around them? Don't we already have? Do we? We have that kid from Vancouver, sure, the kid who plays for the Whitecaps. And I, of course, I can't remember his name now, but I would notice him as I heard it, but he's like 19 years old. He's the future. He's, uh, he's going to be 27. But if he's playing for the Whitecaps, not not taking too much of a shot, I'm not trying to take a shot at MLS, but if he's playing for the Whitecaps, not in Premier League or Bundesliga or somewhere, he, right. he's not one of the top 10, 20 players in the world. I'm, I'm talking about having no, someone who can no, carry this franchise. Well, but that doesn't mean that if he develops, just because he develops in Vancouver and plays for the national team doesn't mean that he's not going to be a terrific player in the, the backbone of Canada in, in 2026. 20, uh, you know, I mean, again, how many 19-year-olds, period, are playing in England? And a kid from Vancouver, I believe, playing in your hometown, playing for the local pro team after you came up through that system. You know, I kind of like that. You know, and I think we're going to develop more players like that. Because what will happen is a lot of these youngsters who are going, oh, I, I don't know if I want to play soccer. I don't know. Now they're going to go, hey, we, you know what? There's money available. There's facilities available. They're on the lookout for national team players. And I think, you know, there's a lot of very talented young men and women 
out there, but in this case, you're talking about the World Cup for men because we already had the Women's World Cup. Uh, you're going to have a lot of situations where you're going to say, you know what, I want to go to college and play soccer, and there's many scholarships available in the U.S., and then I want to come back and play for the national team. If we get a team in, and we still don't know, but I assume we will. I mean, they're, they're not going to have a host country with no team. I just can't imagine that. It's never Scott, it's never happened before. And no. i this right now. If they ever were to announce FIFA to say, oh, by the way, Canada has to qualify, I mean, the, the, you know what would hit the fans. The only reason they however, might. However, I have to tell you, qualifying would be terribly exciting and nerve-wracking. Well, it would. Right? And the only reason they might really, do that. Really exciting. No, they won't. They won't. No, yeah, the only no reason they would is because they'll, we've they'll got three allow, countries hosting. Yeah, but anyway, well, okay, so. Yeah. In the past, I believe there was, I'm trying to think, what, what were the two countries that both won? Was it Japan and Korea? Yes. Okay, fine. So you've got a precedent where more than one country were allowed in. Now, instead of two, it's three. They'll allow Canada, the U.S., and Mexico free, free spots. Uh, um, CONCACAF has six and a half spots available. Three of them will go to Canada, U.S., and uh, Mexico. The other question about this in eight years from now is, okay, so let's say Canada does get better. Let's say we make ourselves competitive-ish or more competitive, period. And you're in your group of three. Do you want to be in a group with two sad sack teams that would allow Canada to get through? Or do you want to be in a group, take your chances and have Italy or have England or have Brazil in your group for the excitement of that game on Canadian soil? Yes. Yes, you have to... In fact, I don't believe, even though there are going to be 16 groups, I doubt very seriously that Canada would get into a group with two, you know, dog countries. Uh, one of them, at least, would have to be better than Canada. Now, I don't know where Canada's going to be ranked in 2026. I don't know. They might mean, you know, maybe they're, I don't even know what they are now. Maybe they'll be uh, 27. Maybe they'll be 23rd. And, and, you know, above them will be, you know, Costa Rica, maybe. Um, who gets through? It would get through in Concacaf. But again, I don't know. I don't know what the rankings are. Maybe Turkey, maybe Russia, or Croatia is in their group, the best team. Then Canada, and then and then a lesser nation. But you know, there's a lot of like there's a lot of competition out there. So it's there is. Say, uh, but I think right now that the fact of the matter is, if you're you've got a kid that's 12 years old and is thinking of playing soccer and is, and is Canadian, the parents and the kid are they're looking at eight years from now, 20 years old, you might be on Team Canada. And to work toward that goal, to, to work not just to play for your country, but to play for your country in a World Cup. At home. That might, yeah, at home, yeah. That would be in pretty North cool. America, at home, that would be something to shoot for. Okay, one more, one more thing about this, then I want to move on to something else. One more thing about this. Let's say, and, and I'm going to put you, this, is, this may never happen, but let's say Canada ends up in a pool with Italy or Portugal or, yeah. or I'm trying to think of one of the, the, the biggest countries that has the biggest number of people from that country living in Canada, China, if they were there, or any, any of those huge countries that have tons and tons of people who now live in Canada. If that game was played at BMO Field, who are the people, which flag are the people wearing when Canada plays that country? Are they, are they waving the Canadian flag or are they waving their home country flag? Here, here's the way I look at it, Scott. This is a very, very good question. It's a very, and it's a very contentious issue with me. I was at the Canada-Greece basketball game in the FIBA World, World Championships 1994 at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. Now, me and my friends were all rooting for Canada because we're Canadian, right, number one, and yep. the game's being played in Canada. Uh, you know, I have nothing against Greece, and of course I have nothing against Greece pe- Greek people. But to me, if you were born in Canada, 
regardless of your family's heritage, you are obligated to root for Canada or say nothing. Until Canada's out, and then you can go and cheer for whoever you want. No, no, when, no, no, I'm saying. That's what I'm saying, when they're playing head-to-head. When, if if Canada is playing in that game. Yep. And you're born in Canada, and you don't root for Canada, get out. You're in Canada, you were born here. I don't care where your father and grandfather were born. Let them root for Greece. That's, I, I have no problem with that, because that's where they were born. If you're visiting from Athens, great, you're from Greece. But if you're born in Canada and you don't root for the country that you were born in, it's tantamount to treason. I, I'm, I'm on board with you on that one. I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I, but I don't know what would happen. And there are a few countries that have deep, deep, deep soccer roots in this country. That's fine. That, that I'm okay with that. that let them and because Canada hasn't been in for decades, that they have gotten so used to voting for, or cheering for that country. It would, be, it would be interesting to see what Scott, would happen. Scott, this isn't, Scott, this isn't like someone from Ottawa who was a Montreal Canadiens fan for years, and then Ottawa got a franchise. And now sort of. Right? <laughs> Not the same thing. No. Same thing. All right. I want to I jump over to something else quickly while we have the time here. Um, the, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays, which I know you watch, I know you follow, I know you've talked about a billion times in your life. You've seen probably more than a billion games. Uh, I'm looking at the New York Yankees right now. Boston's very good this year, of course, American League East. Um, The Yankees are now apparently leading contenders to acquire from Baltimore, both Manny Machado and Zach Britton, their best closer and their all-star third baseman slash shortstop to go with their team that is already really young and really outstanding. Whether or not they get them, if they do, it's over. But even if they don't get them, the Blue Jays are essentially screwed for the next decade. Are they not with the way the Yankees are positioned right now? It sure looks that way, doesn't it? So the only thing you can hope for is to develop this, you know, this young talent that you've got, and you know, find maybe you find a soft underbelly in the Yankees, you know, four to six years from now. That's a long maybe, wait. Maybe, That's a well, long no, wait. Just, it's true, though. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and by the way, i got to tell you a funny story here. I'm going away next week, and we're planning the trip around baseball. We're going to see the Jays at Fenway on this Sunday, right? It's the last game before the All-Star break. So we're, gonna, so we're going to leave on Saturday. So we're going to see that game, and then we're going to see the New Hampshire Fisher Cats in Manchester, New Hampshire, which is about an hour from Boston. In order to see Vladdy Guerrero Jr., well, this was the idea. Of course, we knew that he would be off his disabled list by then, so we got tickets. Um, and, and we also want to see, you know, BGO and Bichette and all these kids in New Hampshire, the future Blue Jays, right? This is how much of a fan I am. <laughs> so we get tickets and all that. And I find out just today that Vladimir Guerrero Jr., when he's <laughs> off the injured list, is going right to Buffalo. Yeah, that's true. Okay? Yeah, well, so hang on. Wait. Wait, wait. Now. So now I have to adjust my uh, vacation. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go to see the Buffalo Bisons play the Durham Bulls um, a week from Thursday in Buffalo because by then Vladdy will be playing in Buffalo. Because the idea was if we're going to go on a road trip, we've got to see Vladdy play live. Yep. <laughs> yep. So, and we're going to probably still go to New Hampshire anyway to see the kids play. And while we're there, we're going to see the Red Sox and Jays. We're going to see uh, the Foo Fighters in concert. We're going to see nice. Los Lobos in concert. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great trip. But, the, uh, but I have to see the future Jays now. I can't wait around. I can't wait around for Josh Donaldson to come off the DL or t- Troy Tulowitzki or any of these old guys that remind me of 2015, 2016. I have to now look at 
the future Jays. I have to see what the 2021 Blue Jays are going to look like. So Vladdy, Biggio, Bichette, Grutzelanik, Sean Reed Foley. You know, Barucki's already up. He's already up with the big club. So are you talking about the 1980 Montreal Expos, or are you talking about (laughs) all the last names? uh, They're all former players' kids. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. So that, that to me, there's, you know, if, if these kids get developed and the Blue Jays can sign a few free agents that the Yankees don't sign mm. and, and make some shrewd trades with guys like Hap or, or Donaldson or whatever they could get for it, then, then yeah, you got to sort of tear it down and say, all right, what are we looking at? We're looking at these kids, the ones I just mentioned. These are going to be the stalwarts of the team. Because the way I look at it right now, Scott, there isn't one player on the Blue Jays that I would keep. They're all tradable. Yeah. Stroman. Sanchez, you know, uh, maybe I keep this kid Barucki and certainly all the other kids that are in the minors. But Pilar, Teoscar Hernandez, Solarte, Diaz, Guriel Jr. I keep. He's really young. Even Devin Travis and Justin Smoke, you know, and any pitcher I I can make a trade for right now. I'm okay with that. I feel your pain, though, with the Vladdy Guerrero. A uh, number of years ago, I bought my son tickets because we wanted to go see Connor McDavid play his last game in Niagara. We got tickets, and the day before, he got into a fight and punched the boards and broke his hand, and he couldn't play. And I was like, oh, well, man. What, what are we doing now? Why are we going to see the Erie Otters play now? Anyway, um, right. so I feel your pain. I know what that's all about. But, I mean, look, I, I, I look at this team, though, and I'm with you that you – if you want to watch something, it's almost better to watch the AAA or the AA team because uh, otherwise, what's the... I mean, I, I love watching baseball in the summer. I'm a huge baseball fan. I see very little short-term, even mid-term hope for the team right now, for the Blue Jays right now. I see little reason to believe that they can contend. I don't disagree with you, Scott, but I like... And I hate the expression, but it's true. I like to watch it one game at a time. Even if I get a little, you know, lightning bolt of hope, you know that I can say. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'll put that in their memory bank, and then when they're when they're a, a more con, a more of a contending team, I'll say, "Yeah, I remember when so and so did that, and so and so did that." So the organization is in kind of like if I'm if I'm the Jays, I don't bring Vladimir Guerrero up to the big club at all. He stays in the minors. I wouldn't start his major league service. I wouldn't. He's 19. Let him have a full year in the minor leagues. Let him get over the injuries, especially on the turf here. The last thing you need is for him to pull a hamstring or something like that in a meaningless game where you're going nowhere. And now it comes down to player development at the minor league level, right? Using some guys that are not going to be with this team the way basketball does. You know, guys who are on one-year deals or, you know, and, and if they go, fine. Darwin Barney was great for a couple of years. You let him go, no big deal, right? He's replaceable. Pretty much everyone's replaceable. So, you know, I, I'm getting excited. I see these young kids that we're talking about as being the, uh, the Barfield, Bell, Mosby, Fernandez, you know, Willie Upshaw, Dave Steves of 2000, of the 2020s. I forgot Jim Acker. <laughs> Jim Acker. <laughs> and Doyle Alexander. Those Doyle guys. Alexander. Yep. Gary Lavelle. Bill Cottle, although well, they brought those guys in as the big ticket items back then. But yes, I, I know where you're, it, look, it does feel like that a little bit. The difference is that the Yankees had not yet discovered how to be the Yankees back in the early 80s yet. They, I mean, they had George Steinbrenner, but they hadn't figured out that we can simply bludgeon everyone else into oblivion by outpaying. And now we've got the Dodgers who can do that, and the Angels who are willing to do that, and the Rangers have a huge local TV deal, so they can do that. It's It's... The funny part is, Mark, the Blue Jays, we only have a minute or so left here. The Blue Jays, when you look at the size of the company that owns them, 
they could be every bit as competitive dollar for dollar wise with the Yankees and Red Sox and everyone else. They, it's they choose not to. Well, Scott, the bottom line for the Blue Jays is they're going to lose one million paying customers yes. from 2017. Yes. And I don't care what kind of business you're in, what the competition is like, you better get your act together because... That's a lot of dough. Yeah, that's that, a million people. Uh, now, some of them might have stayed home and watched the game on TV, and like you, they're, they're running out of patience. They've got other things to do. It's a nice summer. Uh, the diehards will always you know, be there, guys like me. Uh, who goes, you know, I go down to a lot of games and I watch the games on TV. I, I'm, I'm invested in this team and I have been since day one. But I feel your pain. But I tell you, as an organization, Rogers is going to go, uh, hey, guys, we lost a million customers. How are we going to get them back? Win. Uh, yeah, the podcast, Hebsey on Sports, you can find it on iTunes, you can find it a bunch of other places. And one of these days, I'm assuming the Hebsey Awards, even in an auditory form, are going to come back. Oh, absolutely they are. It's, so it's hebsyonsports.com, and, and, and then you just click uh, subscribe, and it's free. Great to hear your voice, my friend. Always glad to have you Thank on. Thank you so much. All the best to you and, uh, and my friends at CHML, all of them. You know, I was there 13 years uh, in uh, Hamilton. I and, know. Uh, I miss you guys. We'll have you back soon. Thanks. Thanks. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.